0: Heavy Metal, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. No spacecraft has ever visited a metal asteroid. That's about to change. Psyche is both a 279-kilometer-wide rock and a new magnificent spacecraft that will set out toward its namesake in August of this year. Come with me to the Jet Propulsion Lab clean room, where we will meet leaders of this exciting mission, including Principal Investigator Lindy Elkins-Tanton. And while we're fresh out of metal asteroids at the Planetary Society, there's a rubber one waiting for the winner of Bruce's new space trivia contest. Busy, busy. I'm also looking forward to the Humans to Mars Summit that kicks off in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May 17. You can learn more about it at ExploreMars.org. I'll be there with lots of your favorite Martians, and here's a special offer. Explore Mars needs volunteers for the summit. If you help out for a couple of hours, you can attend the rest of that day's program for free. Write to volunteers at ExploreMars.org if you're interested. As always, our great weekly newsletter is waiting for you at Planetary.org downlink. You won't believe the top image in the April 29 edition. That's the International Space Station crossing the huge and violent disk of the sun, flares, sunspots, and all. Simply amazing, and it's free. It's rare that I can welcome an external guest to Planetary Radio, knowing that she'll return a few weeks later. Actually, it's unheard of. But when I entered a JPL clean room on April 11th, I'd just finished Lindy Elkins-Tanton's excellent new memoir, A Portrait of the Scientist as a Young Woman. The book is only partially about the psyche mission that Lindy leads. It tells the sometimes brutally honest and intensely personal tale of how Lindy's entire life led her to this job. I knew I'd want to bring her back soon, but my immediate joy was joining her and others in that clean room where the Psyche spacecraft was being prepared for its trip to Florida. That's where it will be lifted to the top of a SpaceX Falcon Heavy to begin its journey to the asteroid belt and an object unlike anything previously visited by we Earthlings. Lindy is a planetary scientist at Arizona State University, where she also serves as Vice President for the Interplanetary Initiative. Lindy, with any luck, this is the first of two conversations that we will have on Planetary Radio, because I'm looking forward, not too long from now, talking with you about your absolutely wonderful book. I've already shared with you how much I enjoyed it and how I've been recommending it to others. But, here we are in front of this spacecraft that is about to go out to visit a body in our solar system that is unlike anything else that has ever been visited. This is really the realization of a dream, isn't it?
1: It is the realization of a dream. The privilege of working on a space mission is something I actually never envisioned for myself. And to be standing here in this clean room and looking at this gorgeous spacecraft, feeling confident that we're gonna launch in just a few months, it's unbelievable.
0: And there is no better place to get a feeling for what goes into a mission like this than standing in this high bay or clean room. Uh, It's always a thrill to be in one of these rooms. There is so much technology spread all around us just to support this mission that you lead.
1: The complexity of space missions is beyond any person to really communicate. We're in this room with a couple of dozen people. Everyone is gowned up, as clean as we can be. God forbid a piece of dust would get on the camera, there's no one in space to wipe it off. Right. By this spacecraft that has taken us more than five years to build, even with a team of over 800 people, it's very complicated.
0: Something that's gonna come out of the discussion when we talk about your book is how much of your life, even if you weren't expecting it, led you to this moment, to being put in charge of a mission like this, which is still, you know, there are not that many principal investigators who have had this kind of opportunity or responsibility, and there are even fewer who are women.
1: That is true, there aren't that many of us who've been so fortunate as to lead a space mission. And of course, how do you prepare for this? There's no you know, high school class in building spacecraft or understanding how to lead a giant complicated team of people from all different disciplines, how to have responsibility without literally having authority over all of the many, many groups that have contributed to this around the world. So in the end, it's all about teamwork and what humans can do when they decide to have a shared vision. To me, that is the purpose of space exploration. It shows us here on Earth what we can do when we all pull in the same direction.
0: I'm thinking back to, and it's toward the end of the book because there are so many other things that when people read it, and they should, they will see how your life has prepared you for this. But it was that time when all of you got together. Was it at Ames? I know it was in Silicon Valley, now I'm I'm forgetting. This was for the final evaluation when the whole team got together and you had to face the people who would say yay or nay to whether this spacecraft would ever actually exist. And it's it's a terrific story. The preparation that went into that alone
1: I, I love talking about this so much. It, it's called the Site Visit, and we were holding it at Maxar, our industry ah, partners of course. in Palo Alto, trying to show the NASA review panel what Maxar had to offer because they've never partnered on a deep space mission before. So the scenario is we'd been competing already for a couple of years. We'd finished our step one proposal that was 240 pages, competed with 28 other missions. We became one of five finalists. We've written a thousand-page concept study report, everything that needed to go into this mission. 150 people worked on it. Finally, we have one week where at Maxar, the whole professional review panel is gonna fly out and spend the final day of the week with us, asking us the hard questions, the ones we didn't answer in the 1,200 pages of writing that we'd already done. We had to stamp and answer these questions in front of the team. Oh my goodness, they redecorated their executive lunchroom. We oiled every single chair so there would not be a squeak in the room. We checked the light angles. We had professional speaker training so we knew how to hit our mark. But the thing that really carried the day was that we worked together as a team, and the review panel noticed that. I didn't stand up at the front going, I'm the big person in charge and I'm going to answer all your questions how I please. Nor did Henry Stone, our project manager or David O., our lead systems engineer, we all passed the question to the person who knew the answer best, which seems so obvious, but it turns out it's unusual. That was a real moment.
0: I want you to add to that story the one facet of it that involved someone I know well, your colleague at ASU, Jim Bell, who until recently was president of the Planetary Society. I call him the... The Ansel Adams of Mars, but he (laughs) he has lots of experience beyond the red planet. He was kind of brought in at the last minute, right? He wasn't going to be at this meeting.
1: Well, he was going to be there in a supporting role because Ah. we thought we knew what the review panel was going to be asking us questions about. And we expected them to focus on the very complicated gamma ray neutron spectrometer which they did not. It turned out all their questions were about magnetometers and magnetic field, the science questions, Mm -hmm. not the engineering questions, and the imagers. We thought the imagers were just a slam dunk. Who needs to even ask questions about imagers? Jim Bell, the Ansel Adams of Mars, is running our imagers. This is the guy who knows more about planetary photos than anybody else on Earth, I think, therefore in the solar system. And there were many questions for him. And there were some questions that we thought were a little naive or maybe even not quite right. And we were a little worried Jim was going to lose his temper. So he's striding back and forth in front of the panel. And finally, he just turns and says, I might not really understand what you're asking. Could you rephrase that question?
0: <laughs> well played.
1: And went, well played, Jim Bell. Yes, well played. And it worked out fine.
0: Well, obviously, because here we are in front of the spacecraft. I I want to talk about it more generally, but the fact that you mentioned the, the, the it has a magnetometer. Yes. Yeah. My guest a few weeks ago on the show was the great uh, Margaret Kivelson, And I actually mentioned to her, you know, spacecraft now like this, like Psyche, that have these devices for detecting and measuring magnetic fields. And she was very pleased.
1: I'm so glad that Margie was pleased. She's an amazing human being and such an expert in that and other aspects of planetary science. We're very proud to be flying these beautiful magnetometers. You can see up on the boom, sticking out the top of the spacecraft to keep it off, uh, away from the spacecraft magnetic field, although our spacecraft is very magnetically clean. These were built by Danish Technical University, they're gorgeous. And the science investigation is led by Ben Weiss at MIT, my friend who, with Maria Zuber, was the co-author of the paper that got us going 11 years ago, starting on this mission.
0: The first thing that got to me, and so I was kind of prepared for coming in because I'd seen pictures of it, It's huge. It's so much bigger than I expected it to be when I first heard about the mission.
1: So I love the fact that this spacecraft is huge. Somehow, its physical manifestation fits how it feels to me. So big and important. (laughs) The solar panels aren't even on it right now. But when they are unfolded, they make the whole spacecraft the size of a singles tennis court. It's huge. And here's the other irony. This is about the smallest spacecraft chassis that Maxar builds. Uh, And so it's largely space inside. It's not crammed with instruments. Our instruments hang off the outside. Mm -hmm. We saved a lot of money by buying something that's very similar to what they normally build. So that's why it's so big.
0: Those solar panels that add so much to the the width of this spacecraft when they'll be extended, I mean, you couldn't even extend both of them at the same time here, could
1: you? We could only only extend one of the panels here to test it, and it filled up the whole room. That's, That's how big they are.
0: There is this strange uh, f- space frame sort of structure over here. Did, did that have something to do with it?
1: Yeah, that amazing structure, which is just a million triangles and tubes of metal, uh, sort of a scaffolding, has been taken down. But it was the scaffolding that allowed us to extend the solar array and test it when it was set up because the solar arrays are not built to work under Earth gravity. Uh, they don't have the strength to hold themselves out that great long distance under Earth gravity. So you have to hold up the weight of gravity and allow them then to practice extending.
0: What about the other instruments on this spacecraft?
1: Right. The one that we have not talked about yet really is the gamma ray and neutron spectrometer, which is on that other boom near the magnetometers. It is an amazing instrument which contains a crystal of the element germanium, Mm. which is the purest substance made by humans. It's a crystal the size of a baseball. And that crystal detects radiation coming off the surface of Psyche and can tell what atom produced the radiation. Mm. So that crystal will tell us what the surface of Psyche is made of. So we have that, the magnetometers, we have a a gravity experiment that we use our radio communications to figure out the gravity field of Psyche.
0: Using the Doppler effect, right? Using the
1: Doppler effect, exactly. Much like the GRAIL spacecraft did. Then, of course, the imagers. And the thing to add to the imager story, Jim Bell's imagers, is that we've built a pipeline that will allow us to put the images on the Internet within 30 minutes of our receiving them from the spacecraft through the Deep Space Network. So we're not going to edit them or censor them. We want everyone in the world to be looking at the same time and saying, what is this thing? I think that
0: also says something about your philosophy, your approach to this mission. You talked about the team that has come together behind it, yeah. but also that being that open with your data, which not all missions are.
1: Yeah, you know, there's there's a huge human urge to hold our information to ourselves. You know, knowledge is power. And I worked
0: hard to get this. Why, why should I give it away right, right up front? I'm
1: going to milk it of all the information. I'm going to publish my ideas first. I don't think that's what space missions are really about. I think they're really to inspire and engage all of humanity We're gonna have plenty of time to publish our ideas. Other people can publish them too. It's not just me saying this, the whole team feels this way. And it's Jim himself who said, we can do this pipeline, let's do it.
0: One of the other fascinating design characteristics to the spacecraft is, well, you you have ion engines, electric engines, but I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, I have not seen a spacecraft before that puts its rocket engines they are, even though they may not have tremendous thrust, out on robotic arms.
1: Yeah, these beautiful two degrees of freedom arms that hold these quite small ion thrusters so that just like your shoulder and your elbow, we can decide what direction we want these to point in. So we'll have one, there are two thrusters on each arm. At, At a given time, only one of them will be firing and they'll be pointing kind of back and toward each other so that we can have it driving the center of mass of our spacecraft forward. We're excited about it, they're very futuristic, they make a sort of a blue glowing plasma, Mm. pretty cool.
0: Does this explain why you needed those gigantic solar panels?
1: Exactly right, our spacecraft runs on solar energy. It's a solar electric spacecraft. So our solar panels power not just the thrusters, but also everything that happens on the spacecraft. It powers the heaters, the coolers, and the science instruments, and the communications. Everything that happens comes from the sun.
0: Let's talk about your objective. As we said, it's not like any object that has actually been visited by humans before. How do we know that? How do we know from this distance that it's not just another ball of fluff or dirt and rocks?
1: Yeah, is it just a giant space dust bunny? No, it is not. (laughs) Yeah, what can we discover from Earth? Well, one thing we do is we look at the light that reflects off asteroids and comes to the Earth. The asteroids absor- absorb certain kinds of light and reflect others, and that shows us what they're made of to some degree. So we know that Psyche is different from most asteroids that has different light reflectance. We also, amazingly, have the ability to bounce radar off of asteroids and receive the radar returns and learn how radar interacts with the surface. Then we can watch it spinning in optical light telescopes and begin to get a sense of its shape. Not a very good sense, we have no pictures of it, but all these things together, along with the density of Psyche, which is very important data, we figure out its mass, not me personally, but other brilliant people who know how to do this, figure out what its mass, its weight is, by how it interacts with very distant other objects in the solar system. Then if we combine with how, what its volume is, we get a sense of how dense it is. That density and that reflected light tells us it has to be largely made of metal, There are almost no other asteroids that seem to be largely made of metal, maybe nine of them or fewer, and Psyche is by far the biggest. So that's the information we have from Earth, and now we've got to go there to find out more.
0: And the significance of this, that it is made of metal, I mean, when we look at the worlds, the big worlds around our solar system, we suspect, right, that there's some metal down there at the core.
1: That's right, we can tell from Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, and also the Moon, from the way they spin and the way they orbit, that they have a very dense middle that has to be iron metal. So the cores, the iron metal cores of all of our planets, we're very curious about them. They make our magnetic fields, they protect the atmosphere, they may be very important to making the Earth habitable, but we're never ever going to see them. Way too much pressure, way too much temperature, never possible to see them. Psyche may be the only way humans will ever see a part of a core. So ironically, as my husband says, we have to go to outer space to visit inner space.
0: (laughs) How do we know? I mean, a lot of the artist concepts, the renderings that I have seen of this asteroid and others that are like it, iron, nickel asteroid types, the metal is exposed. But I mean, we know from recent experience that asteroids are notorious collectors of space uh flotsam uh would do you expect we'll be able to actually see the metal surface
1: i really hope we'll see some metal surface and so uh, the radar and the reflected light and also the thermal properties other people who've been researching this report in their papers that they believe that the surface has to be made partly of metal it could be just metal granules like metal sand but that would be pretty cool to see in my fantasies There are kind of planes of metal, like big regions of metal. That may not be at all the case. It might be covered with little rocks and grains and things of metal and rock. I think it's gonna surprise us. I think it's gonna show us things we haven't seen before.
0: I've been having much too good a time talking with you, but you're in demand. There are people waiting to uh, catch you with their microphones. But I look forward to that conversation maybe a month or two from now you when your book comes out.
1: I'm so appreciative of you for reading my book and for saying kind words about it. It's very personal, obviously.
0: Thank you. And best of success with this, Thanks of course. Thanks
1: a lot. Thanks for coming and looking at our beautiful spacecraft. Wouldn't have missed it. Love it.
0: Psyche mission Principal Investigator Lindy Elkins-Tanton. Her new memoir comes out in June. It's titled A Portrait of the Scientist as a Young Woman, and we'll talk with her about it after it is published. Her spacecraft will launch no earlier than August 1st. Want to hear more about it? My clean room conversation with Psyche Project Manager Henry Stone and much more can be heard in the online version of this week's show at planetary.org radio and wherever good podcasts can be found. I'll be back with Bruce in a minute. This is Planetary Radio. Hello, I'm George Takei. And as you know, I'm very proud of my association with Star Trek. Star Trek was a show that looked to the future with optimism, boldly going where no one had gone before. I want you to know about a very special organization called the Planetary Society. They are working to make the future that Star Trek represents a reality, boldly go to build our future.
1: There's so much going on in the world of space science and exploration, and we're here to share it with you. Hi, I'm Sarah, digital community manager for the Planetary Society. Want more space? We've got the latest news, pretty planetary pictures, and Planetary Society publications on our social media channels. You can find the Planetary Society on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. I hope you'll like and subscribe so you never miss the next exciting update from the world of planetary science.
0: Time for What's Up on Planetary Radio. Here is the chief scientist of the Planetary Society. Dr. Bruce Betts is back with uh, all the usual fun. We couldn't find a metal asteroid to give away, but we do have a rubber one.
2: At least safer, I guess. Yeah.
0: I have a metal one in a little box up above my head that was given to me years ago little meteorite that
2: uh, a friend gave me. But uh, but I'm not parting with that. Sorry, folks. <laughs> so you keep metal meteorites above your head on a regular... I wonder what those were. <laughs> I hadn't thought about that. Uh, we'll just, I'll just get out of the way when the big one comes. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, it's not like there are earthquakes here, so I wouldn't worry about it. How about you? Are you safe? No, definitely not. But we don't, we're not going into that right now. So we got those planets in the sky, still looking cool in the pre-dawn. And... A little something special. Let's start with the planets. We got uh, in the pre-dawn east, super bright Venus is still close to bright Jupiter. That's a little above it to the right. Farther up is Mars, reddish and yellowish Saturn, both dimmer. So you got four planets nicely lined up there. On May 15th and 16th that night, Matt, total lunar eclipse. And even in the realm of total total lunar eclipses, it's it's a pretty cool one. Visible. So here are the happy people from North America, portions of Western Europe, and Western Africa. The moon is passing along a nearly central line, meaning the total eclipse is longer. So it's almost an hour and a half of total eclipse with about an hour of good partial eclipse before that and an hour after that. When might it be? Well, the partial eclipse, partial umbral eclipse begins at 227 UTC on May 16th. That's for for us in western north america pacific time seven twenty-seven p.m on may 15th so you can look up details i'll come back to it next week one more time but uh it's going to be cool my good friends at uh, southern
0: illinois university uh carbondale they're going to put on a big party for this uh, lunar eclipse on the night of the 15th of course man they get all the luck i mean five years ago the total solar this time, the total lunar, and then uh, in two years, it's just two ways, years away, the return of the total solar eclipse
2: to uh, Carbondale, Illinois. It's, uh, it's exciting. I hope to be there again. It is cool, but do they really get all the luck? I heard there was rumors of a cloud at really bad time in the last total solar eclipse. You had to remind me. Okay, please go on before I start to cry. This week in space history, reasons not to cry. 1961, Alan Shepard becomes the first American in space. 1968, I know this fascinates you, Matt. Me too. The video is amazing. 1968 this week, Neil Armstrong ejected from the lunar lander trainer. Which is wow. just an amazing video if you haven't seen it of him of this thing getting completely out of control and him ejecting just before it crashes.
0: Even if he hadn't had that adventure on, on the Gemini capsule yeah. <laughs> that that proved he had the right stuff, this would be enough.
2: If people need to see this video, it's it's just beyond belief. Yeah, you can look it up. Speaking of looking things up, this has nothing to do with it. <laughs> Love it. Psyche. You've heard of Psyche, right? Oh, yeah, right. (laughs) Well, I don't know whether you covered this, but it is the largest single asteroid currently scheduled to be visited in the future by a spacecraft. That particular random space fact did not come up in conversation, so thank you. You are welcome. We may even come back to things in the trivia contest. But first, we've got a fun and interesting trivia contest for you from last time. Who is the youngest person to walk on the moon at the time of walking on the moon? How do we do, Matt? Another
0: huge response. We are getting lots of entries nowadays. I got to read this one. It is unrelated to the contest, but it's just lovely. Uh, From Kim Roberts in California. He says he recently rejoined the Planetary Society after nearly two decades away. Welcome back, Kim. He says, I've always been interested in space exploration, but I am truly thrilled to be back investing in our future and gaining knowledge of the heavens and our place in them. Wow, Kim. Well,
2: that's very nice. Welcome
0: back. Here is, I believe, the answer, not from our poet laureate who took the week off, but from Gene Lewin in Washington. Atop of Saturn V, they launched in April '72. Apollo's 10th crewed mission from our planet, Blue. Within the LEM, Orion, they landed on the moon, examining the Descartes lands to provide us with more clues. Young would be the oldest and commander of this trip, Mattingly the youngest, piloting the Casper ship. Duke was in the middle of these encapsulated mates, but of those who walked upon the moon,
2: he's still youngest to date. Charlie Duke? Nice. Well played. Indeed, Charlie Duke at 36 years, 6 months, and 18 days when he stepped onto the surface of the moon. And here is a little bit
0: of Charlie Duke before he got his ticket to ride. Uh, we've used this before, but I still had it handy, so I'm going to play it. We copy
1: you down, Eagle. Everybody, T1. Stand by for T1. Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Rocket
2: twenty. Tranquility, we copy you on the ground. You got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. Thanks a lot.
0: That was Charlie Duke, who was the Capcom, apparently requested by Neil Armstrong for the Apollo 11 mission to be the capsule communicator, who uh, was one of those turning blue at uh, at Mission Control, uh, Johnson Space Center. It wasn't John. Well, I guess it was Johnson Space Center by 72. Yeah. Anyway, wasn't that cool? That was super cool. Hey, Paul Mundy, congratulations, you first time winner, long time entrant. Uh, Paul Mundy in the United Kingdom, Charlie Duke, aged 36, for Apollo 16. Paul, congratulations. We're going to send you a Planetary Society kick asteroid, rubber asteroid for your trouble.
2: Metal asteroid. Oh, no, rubber, rubber asteroid. Sorry.
0: Metal!
2: That's your line. Um, (laughs) Metal! We're ready to move on. Speaking of Psyche, the asteroid. Name all asteroids that are bigger than the asteroid Psyche that have been visited by spacecraft. And to be clear, since Ceres is confusing, let's not include Ceres as it is now a dwarf planet. Give me everything uh, not including series that's bigger than Psyche that have has already been visited by spacecraft, go to planetary.org slash radio contest. You have until
0: Wednesday, May 11, Wednesday, May 11 at 8 a.m. Pacific time, because that's where we live, uh, to get us this answer and maybe, maybe, maybe win yourself a Planetary Society kick asteroid,
2: rubber asteroid. Metal Stride. We're done. All right, everybody, go out there, look up the night sky, and uh, think about what you would have said to Neil Armstrong when they got safely on the surface of the moon. Would you have been turning blue, or some other shade of—I of, I don't know.
0: Thank you, and good night. Was that song "Love Is Blue" uh, uh, still a hit? It was a number one hit. I know it had to be around '72.
2: Country music?
0: (laughs) No, hardly. Uh, He's Bruce Betts, country music fan and chief scientist of the Planetary Society, who joins us every week here for What's Up. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its totally psyched members. Marco Verde and Ray Paletta are our associate producers. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser at Astro.